Well, let's pray and uh, we'll jump in. Father, we, uh, we're just so uh, thankful that you have spoken such a word to us and given us such a covenant. And we pray this morning, please, that you might help us appreciate anew these things. Uh, for those who are new amongst us or newish, that uh, please, uh, some of these things might come home in deep and true ways. Uh, please help us understand the, uh, the grace, the gift that you have poured out so lavishly on us, that we might live always before you, faithful. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series. We're back into the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you remember, uh, in fact, I'd be interested to ask what you remember of uh, the book of Hebrews if you've been around. Uh, it's a book that is really an ancient sermon. Chapter 13 tells you it's a word of exhortation that's been written down. And uh, so what we're reading here, for inst- just for your own interest actually, is an ancient, this is what an ancient sermon, if you went to church back in the first century, this is what you would have got. Do you know how long it takes to read Hebrews, chapter, uh, the whole book of Hebrews? A couple of hours? So you're doing pretty well this morning, right? So now it's 45 minutes, I think they, you can estimate, it takes to read through, that, that was a sermon in the first century, if you went to church, that's the kind of thing you would have got. Uh, no internet stories, as far as I can tell, no inspirational stories particularly, except... Uh, except the great crowd of witnesses who are an inspiration, of course, to us in the person of Jesus. But it, uh, it's written for a very particular purpose. It's, it tells us what its purpose is. It's, in, it's written to encourage believers to continue faithful in the things of Christ. It's written most likely to Rome uh, in that first century context. And if you know your history, then you'll know that uh, in the Roman context, there was uh, some riots and one of the emperors kicked out the Christians from Rome uh, there was quite a bit of hostility, and hostility was emerging again in the first century against the Christian faith, and the Roman Christians were particularly concerned, and there was lots of, uh, uh, lots of angst, such that they were tempted to give up Christianity and go back to Judaism. They were most likely Jewish converts, they wanted to go back to Jew- Judaism. It's a wonderful book, uh, because it, it does a whole bunch of things for us. It, it's about stirring us to stay with Christ in the context of difficulties, um, And it gives us the reasons why. Why ought you stay with Christ? Because everything hangs on Him. Life and death hangs on Him. There's no life outside. It's a wonderful reflection on the person of Jesus, who He is and what He has done. It does take thought. Actually, if you've got your Bibles, open them up. Chapter 8, let's have a quick look there. That's where we're starting. Look at the very first verse. Grab your Bible. Um, Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. What does that tell you about uh, the nature of this document? Just interesting to reflect. The main point of what we're saying is this. Uh, What kind of sermon is this? It's one that develops thoughtful argument. The main point, I've been making a point. He's been taking chapters to make the point. He develops a thought because if you're going to press on firm in Christ... If you're going to remain faithful to Christ in a world, world that's hostile, what we need is deep thought. You need to press in. You need to understand the things that he says in chapter 5 and 6. Uh, you, you, you need milk, not solid food. By this stage, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be able to instruct other people. You've been Christians a long time, but all you are is bouncing around the superficials. You actually haven't gone beneath. That's why you're so fragile. Ephesians chapter 4. The reason why people are tossed back and forth by the winds and waves of teaching is because they've not gone deeply into the things of Christ. They've just relied on their emotions. They've just relied on their history and experience, their friends. 
And what this author, this preacher wants us to do is to think deeply, to go to the solid food that we might have the substance and the strength and the roots to manage a life that's so complex and difficult. Um, all of this keeps pointing to the fact that Jesus is the key, but understanding who Jesus is is the key. Are you this morning in danger of drifting? It might be that you are. It's hard following Christ and the world around us. And the pressures can be great. I mean, we've just had an example of this two weeks ago. Uh, Dave mentioned this last week. I think the CEO of Essendon, AFL, uh, was forced to resign because of his commitment to a Christian church in Melbourne. Do you remember this? It was either choose your job or choose your, your Christian church. And uh, he chose to remain faithful to the ministry of his church. Um, but I don't doubt that many of you are in context where work is hard. There's pressure on you to compromise, to drift, and you might find yourself thinking, Do you know what, I'd be better off if I, if I didn't give up Christianity, but I just gave up my public association with it. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't drift away from God and my relationship. I'm still a... But I would perhaps not be as tightly entwined with the things of formal religion, with church. It might be you are in a place where you're thinking of drifting. Um, my experience over... over quarter of a century, uh, longer now, 35, 40 years of ministry, is that very few people give up on God. Very few people become atheists. Atheists is a small group. Um, mainly what happens is people drift away from sort of the, the practice and associations with gathering as Christians and they kind of drift into a more private sense of me and God and my relationship with him, where there aren't so many clearly defined expectations. It's more private, it's, more, it's less churchy and so on. Um, and importantly, in a roundabout way, that, um, that kind of drifting actually, when you understand it like that, is more, is more like what went on with Hebrews. That, that is to say, this group of Believers were drifting, but they weren't driving, drifting from believing in God to rejecting God. They were drifting in from um, association with the Christian view of God and how to approach God back into another religious expression, back to Judaism. And they were doing that because of all various reasons. Judaism was, an, it was a protected religion back in that context. Christianity wasn't. It was safer to be a Jew back then than a Christian. Um, but in doing this, they were operating with a well-trod set of ideas that it doesn't matter so much which religion. There are different paths to the one God. You can pursue the Christian path or the Jewish path. They were operating with that kind of mind. And God will be okay as long as you're sincere in what you do. They were going this well-trod path. And it's interesting, just uh, every age has this kind of thing. It's expressed slightly differently. I heard it just this last week. Um, every now and then I'll, I'll dip into newspaper articles and I'll read the comments. I find the comments just as fascinating as the articles sometimes because you get a feel for what's happening for people. Do you read the comments? You might be writing the comments. Um, but I read, this, I read this comment about the Essendon thing. Listen to this. Religion, religion has been a contentious subject for millennia. For me personally, I figure uh, if a certain people find they feel the need to have a set of rules to make them happy, fair enough. Now first note that, what's religion? Set of rules to make you feel happy. All right, interesting observation. 
But then uh, he goes on, problem always seems to stem from whatever tribe they decide to believe in seems to give them this feeling of self-righteousness. As they go through life feeling they have found the truth. And there it is. The, the, the problem with religions is that person joins a religious community, the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and they end up thinking they've found the truth. What's this person's assumption about religions? There's no one of them that's true or more true than another. They're all truths. And in fact, he goes on to say, as long as they practice love and understanding, there can't be too much harm in that. The bottom line, what matters is not really what religion you're in. What matters is that you practice love, and understanding. And as long as those pesky Christians just realise that what really matters and should matter in their religion is love and understanding, accepting everyone, we'll all be okay. As long as they understand what they should understand about their religion, you see. A set of rules that should lead them to love and understanding. Now, it is such an appealing view. It feels in our cultural community, it feels so right. But this book... The book of Hebrews operates with an utterly different assumption. And it drives the whole sermon or letter or whatever it is. Don't drift. Why, says this author? Because to drift from Christianity, for this author, is to drift from the truth. Now, I'm not sure where you're at, of course. Uh, oh, I know where some of you are at. I get to talk to many of you and so on. But um, some of you may be drifting. And you may be drifting with exactly this thinking. That, um, sure, I'm happy to come along every now and then, but I figure it's, all, it's about love and understanding and whatever path, as long as sincere, you might actually be functioning with that kind of mindset. And uh, you, you still want to believe in God, of course. And whatever happens, you'll always believe in God. Your you'll always have this relationship with God in a spiritual sort of sense. Um, but you, you do secretly sense that it doesn't matter which religion. Um, and in fact, there's a, probably a problem in choosing just one. Doesn't that make us self-righteous? Well, let's tackle some of these ideas by following the passage. And let me give a quick sense of the direction we're going to go. Um, the first little part we're going to be looking at, particularly 1 to 6, may not seem very relevant at, start, at the first. So just bear with me. We'll, we'll go through this text. It's going to talk about priests and temples and so on and sacrifices. And it may not be something you're at all into, which you ought not be. Um, but uh, as we go along, it'll become more relevant, more obviously relevant. And certainly the last section when we come to covenant, the second half of the chapter will become very, very relevant and show the relevance of the whole thing. So let's jump in, chapter 8, verse 1. <clears throat> he starts with, now, about, now, the main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The main point of what we're saying, so he's summing up. So we've jumped in halfway through the book last year. We went through the first seven chapters. We've jumped in halfway through. The, he's been developing a point up to this point, and the point that he's been developing is about priests and high priests and the need for them. And the point of what we've been saying is that what we need, he says, what's his, chapter 7 he's been saying, what we need is one who's eternal and sinless. 
He makes the point in chapter 7, verse 23, that there have been many priests because of death. They're mortal, and that's a problem. And verse 26, uh, the kind of priests we've had have been sinners. They've had to, verse 27, offer sacrifices for their own sins before they can be of any use to anyone else. Um, and he says, effective, he says, what we need actually is a priest who's eternal, who never dies, so he's always there for you. The same priest who knows you, you can rely on. And we need one who is sinless, who doesn't have to deal with his own sin before he can come and help you with yours. We need one who is uh, immortal, uh, eternal, and one who is blameless, pure and holy. And chapter 8, verse 1, the main point of what we're saying is this, we have such a high priest. We have one who, in fact, who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty, who has done such a perfect job of being a priest, which is the role of mediating between us and God and bringing God to us and us to God. He's done such a perfect job of that, he's able now to sit down. He's finished his work um, because of his own sacrifice, which we'll look more at next week. Um, and more, this priest that we have, we have this priest, verse 2, he serves at the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not merely by human beings. Tabernacle is just another word for temple. It was the, it was the movable temple called a tabernacle. When it got fixed, it's called a temple. Uh, the tent one, the brick one, if you like, the stone one. Um, we have one who serves, who's wholly blameless and eternal, who serves at not the man-made tabernacle, temple, but the eternal, heavenly one who has sat down. Um, now, this is that lack of relevance thing. Not many of us attempted to go back to priesthood. Some might be. Uh, there are various uh, religions at the present time who do pay a lot of attention to human priests, uh, to men who are priests. The more traditional religious context of Roman Catholicism, orthodoxy, um, the uh, kind of uh, Eastern religions often have priests. And this is a little bit of a warning to not go back to those. I'm not a priest. Um, I'm not much of anything. I'm just a bloke who gets up and says things. Right? So I'm, we don't need priests because we've got the great priest, Jesus. Don't go back to that. But he's making the point, don't go back to Judaism and its priests when you've got Jesus, the perfect who has come. Now, it may not seem particularly relevant for all of us, but it has its power. Let me apply some of this to us. Um, we do need a priestly role. We need someone to be a mediator between the holy God and sinful humanity. There is no one like Jesus to fulfil that role. But I want to offer some other implications and applications. Um, what the author is doing here is playing out the comparisons of two religions. Christianity and Judaism. And a key to his thought is, they're not the same. It does matter which you choose, which cuts against every instinct of our popular mind, um, but it's core to Christian thinking. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He has an extraordinarily exclusive claim about himself. But that's not popular to our current thinking. Um, but the, the author's carrying the same thing. He's saying the two religions are not the same. One is better than the other because the priesthood of Jesus is far superior to the priesthood of the other. When Jesus came, he came not just as another man, he came as God in the flesh 
to be our go-between and stand between us. Nothing else compares because of the eternal priesthood of the high priestliness of Jesus. The resurrection establishes him that. But he's saying more than this. He's actually telling us something about the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. And it's not the relationship of good, of, of good, better. He's not saying Christianity is better, don't go back to the less good. He's saying something far more profound than that. He is saying it's not the difference between uh, better, good. It's the difference between obsolete and now the only one left. Because of what emerges through this, and here's where the relevance starts to ratchet up for us, it, what emerges through this is the scale of God's work in history, the movement of God through history in the distant past for our sake. And th this becomes astonishing. And to dig here, I want you to notice some words. Look at verse 2, the word true. Do you see how he talks about the true tabernacle? But he'll come and he'll begin talking in chapter 8, verse 5, you see how he talks about serving at a sanctuary that is the copy and shadow of what is in heaven. A copy and a shadow. Those words hold within them a rich and profound sense of history and God and his omniscience and omnipotence, his power. Shadow and copy. The true one. Let me, let me give you a bit of background. When you go all the way back into the Old Testament, so back into the, the second book of the Bible, Exodus, um, what you find is a group of people who are in slavery, they're saved and rescued out of slavery. Do you remember this? Under Moses. Uh, this is a long time before Jesus, centuries before, 1,400 years or so before Jesus. You get to, <clears throat> they're brought to a place called Mount Sinai. And uh, <clears throat> in chapter 20 of Exodus, we're told that they're given the Ten Commandments. This is where the Ten Commandments come from, all the way back in Exodus, uh, before Jesus. And, um, and then they're also, in chapter, uh, in chapter 25 of the same place, you'll find that they're, they're told about a temple that they're to build. And uh, it's to be made, if I can actually find my reference, it's to be made according to the pattern. Isn't it uh, 25 verse, where is it, somewhere? Verse 9. Thank you. Make the tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Well, fair enough. God's going to give me a pattern about how to make the temple and the tabernacle, and so I'll make it according to the way God says. Um, but why? Why does it have to be exactly as God says it's going to be? Well, he's not really told. God just said it mattered. Moses didn't know that there would be a moment in history in the future when the one from which he patterned his building would come into play. With a priest that all the earthly priests were just shadows of. The all-knowing, all-powerful God, the God of the past, present and the future, put it all into place in the past, anticipating and embedded in the language of copy is the anticipation of the reality, of something truer, the real. And the point I want to make just at this moment is there's a movement in the Bible that is unique of all religions. 
There's a movement in the Bible that's unique of all religions. It's a movement from copy, shadow, the anticipation of something more, the preparation for something more, and its fulfilment. Even in the establishing, come back to, uh, oh, let's see if we can do this flipping, come back to uh, Hebrews chapter 7, <clears throat> if you've got it open, keep it open there. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. If, chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that was the Old Testament priesthood, if perfection could have been attained through that priesthood, <clears throat> indeed the law given to the people established the priesthood, why was there still the need for another priest to come? And what the author is alluding to, and he explains it here, is that God dropped into the midst of all of that priestly stuff a bloke called Melchizedek. And he did that to say, you know what? The Levitical priesthood is not going to be the answer. We're going to need another one. I've set in place the anticipation of another one. There's another one coming, Melchizedek. And, and, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, if, if the Levitical priesthood was good enough, why in the midst of it actually functioning did he say, you know what, there's going to be another one coming? It would be like going on holidays. And, and, you know, three days into your holidays, you're already planning the next one. What does that tell you about your holiday? You're on a herd holiday, that's what it tells you. It's probably an East Coast low is struck and you're already thinking, my only hope to cope is to plan the next one away in some other country where, I don't know. But, you know, if, if you're planning a new priesthood in the midst of a, the old one, it's telling you something about the old one, you see. And that's what this author points out to them. Built into the Jewish religious system was the anticipation of it being undone and dismantled so that in the future a better fulfilment in the future would come. And just here, just notice this, it's a huge help in underlying, if you're drifting, to know that what we're dealing with here is actually the hand of God. No human could have made that up. This is a book written over, this is not like the Book of Mormon, written by one man in his lifetime. This is a book written over thousands of years by a whole 40 different authors, that all dovetail together and you've got this anticipation back in many authors back of something to come that will be better and bigger and another author writes about another piece of anticipation and another one how did they make all that up because it finally dovetails so perfectly in the person of Jesus it's just it's just another tap to say we are dealing with something that's it's it's inspired of God. It's extraordinary. Now, once the reality came, there was no going back. This is his point. The old becomes obsolete. Let me give you a couple of illustrations here. Um, I know some of you have gone through the adoption process, and praise God for you. It's, we want to keep affirming that as a... Um, and just imagine, as you're preparing to adopt a child um, from overseas, let's say... Um, you know, you visit it and so on and, and it's all been worked out and you're waiting for the child to arrive and the, the adoption agency sends you a picture of the child who's coming and you stick it on the fridge and you copy it and you put it... Because the picture's just this, you know, she's coming, she's coming. And the picture's a great help because here's what she looks like. So you just... You just now you go to the airport with your picture and she arrives. What do you do with the picture? I hope you put it in your back pocket. 
You might not throw it away, but I hope you put it in the back pocket because, because the reality's here. It would be very weird to have the girl arrive, you in the picture, and go home with the picture and not the girl. <laughs> the picture's now obsolete. You see, it's done its job. It was there to anticipate and help. You, you see, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the Old Testament Jewish religion is not just not as good and Christianity is better, and you can choose which one you like. What the author of Hebrews is saying, Judaism was set up to be the photo, the copy, the shadow, to anticipate. So that when the reality comes, it is, verse 13, obsolete. And to go back is to go back to the photo without the child. That's the depth of what he's saying here. Now, as I say, not many of you, um, not many uh, perhaps are tempted to go this way, but this writer sees the implications of the old human priesthood in the temple as, as full of history, as huge. It's not, not, as, not as wonderful and, and good, but just not good enough, but as, as now nothing. As now nothing. Give you another illustration. Your child wants a mobile phone. This gives me a chance to preach a little message about mobile phones. Your child wants a mobile phone. And any good parent says to a child who wants a mobile phone? No, that's right. Until they're how old? 21. Good, nice. <laughs> Depression, it correlates massively with use of mobile phones for girls particularly. Just, just saying it, right? Um, we, mental health is a massive thing and mobile phones are part of the problem. But, but, so your kid says, I want a mobile phone. And you say, no, you're not getting one. But here's the deal. I'll give you a cardboard cutout one. <laughs> and you can play with that, right? And uh, it's, I've put buttons on all that kind of stuff. And it's yours, that's yours, until you get the real one. Now, what happens when the real one finally comes along? What do they do with the cardboard cutout? It's gone. It's gone. Because it's obsolete. That is... Why we call the Old Testament the Old Testament. You work this out? The Bible's in two halves. The old, you don't go to the Old Testament and say, look, it says this about food laws, therefore you Christians are inconsistent. You respond by saying, that's the old. You, you misunderstand the very fundamental basics of the Bible if you think that we're picking and choosing between old and new and having what we like. No, no, the old's old, it's obsolete. Now, there's more to be said, but we haven't got time for that this morning. Um, the relevance, all of this tells us that God is a God who is omniscient, who sees the beginning from the end and has planned and gives us deep confidence. Don't go back to priesthood. But it gets more relevant as you come into chapter 8 and you get to the second half, which we're going to go through much more quickly, verse 7. Uh, or verse 6. The ministry of Jesus, he, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to the priests of the Old Testament, as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the Old Covenant, Old Testament, since the New Covenant is established on better promises. Now he's hitting a new thought here, there's a transition to the word covenant. It's been used before, you see it in chapter 7, uh, but he's only mentioned it briefly and um, now he's going to focus on the idea of covenant. And he's saying he's the Old Covenant, Jesus is part of a new covenant. And what does the word covenant mean? It means contract, agreement. Um, basically, that's what it's about. Um, 
And the old covenant is part of the old priesthood, the old temple. In fact, if you go back to Exodus, you'll find in uh, chapter 20, 19, 20 and so on, you get the covenant on which, in which the temple and the priest sits, you see. Um, and that covenant, the old covenant, is God preparing. But this preparation of covenant speaks very much more directly into human religious thinking. So here's where it becomes very relevant for us. The covenant, the old covenant. What is the old covenant? What is the old covenant? Well, in Exodus 19, here is one summary of it. There's a few summaries, but let me give you Exodus 19. The summary goes like this. Um, verse 5, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be mine. You'll be saved. If you obey me Fully, If you keep the rules, um, now it's becoming immediately relevant, isn't it? The covenant is given, it's a promise, a deal. If you obey me fully, keep the rules, I'll accept you. And they all said, Amen, we will. They've accepted the covenant. Now it's becoming relevant because here it is. Although we don't have a formal covenant expression in our secular world about relationship with God, almost every person I meet operates within an informal covenant that's exactly the same. That quote I read out. How does that person think about religions? Keeping the rules. And what's his answer to life? If you just love and understand, if you just keep those rules... The way he functions with life is about rules, just different rules. Buried here is the sense that all humans must be good if you're going to connect with God. However good is defined, and being good will be defined differently by all of us, but am I not right? Isn't this how people operate? If there is a God, you, 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 actually, you do this with me. Most of you believe there's a God. If, you die, you stand before God, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? Now, don't say anything. But if God says, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say in answer to that? Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't ruin it for everyone else. What are you going to say to that? Here's how 95% of the population of the planet answers that question. Might be bigger. I've just made that number up. <laughs> here's how the vast majority of people answer that question why should you let me into heaven because I fill in the blanks tried to do my best went to church was loving and understanding wanted people to be loving and understanding argued with religious fundamentalists about how narrow-minded they were because I did all I was a decent parent you see, the bottom line is most of us operate with a covenant with God, which is, if I do enough, he'll have me. And most of us convinced we will have done enough. You boil everything down, we have this covenant. Every religion in the world has this covenant except one. Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, whatever religion you can name. They operate with this fundamental covenant, which is, if you keep the rules, whatever the religion's rules are, you will be okay with God. And that's the covenant God made with the Jewish people. If you keep these rules. 
And it kind of feels okay. Because basically, doesn't that mean everyone will be okay? Because the assumption goes that, sure, we're not perfect, but we're basically okay. And if you're a Muslim and you basically keep your religious rules, which most people assume is love one another, but they're not. But if you basically do that and be under, you'll be okay if you're a Buddhist and just love. Most people assume Buddhism is about love, but it's not. If you're loving and understanding, you'll be okay too. As long as you're sincere, whatever, whatever is right, all of them are about doing. Do this, do this, do this. And irreligious people are the same. If there is a God, he'll be okay with me as long as I do enough, do enough, are good enough, and I'm sure I am. But you come back to Hebrews, and the point of what Hebrews is arguing is, at least between two religions, Judaism and Christianity, only Christianity is right and still valid, but more than this, the old covenant does not work. Look at verse 6. Um, he is mediator of a covenant that's superior to the old one, since it's established on better promises. If there'd been nothing wrong with the first covenant, the do covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant. A covenant not based on do. A whole new way of relating to God. A new covenant. You see, God says, um, I gave you a covenant, this do covenant, but you kept breaking it, you kept breaking it. All you had to do was love and understand, but you weren't loving, you weren't very understanding. And I dare say the internet comment that says, <laughs> just thinking of this, it sounds so beautiful to say, you know, all the religions, uh, if they just, just realise it's about loving and understanding, isn't that a little bit self-righteous? Do you know, I know about all religions, they're really about love and understanding. Well, you don't know them very well, but you think you do. And if it's all, I'm going to tell you what it's all about, loving under, isn't that a little bit superior? A little bit patronising? Yeah. It's interesting how it sits in all of us. God says, you know what, none of us can keep that. None of us can keep the rules. We do in theory, we're good at seeing others and their failures. But at whatever point the Bible says, whatever point you judge others, you judge yourself. We want to be loving, but we're not. Sometimes we can, we can steal ourselves for a moment. I've been, I've, I've, I've turned, <laughs> hey, I've turned 60. I know it's crazy to believe, isn't it, right? But I've turned 60. And um, I've seen a lot of life now and I've seen a lot of ministry. And people look good from a distance. <laughs> when your eyesight's bad too, I've got to tell you. But, but when you get up close, every single one of you, Every single one of you I know, you, 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 are full of, you are full of sin. And I am too. The do covenant doesn't work. And so God says, I've got another covenant. A covenant based on better promises. And the promise it's based on is this, I'll do it for you. And forgive you. It's beautiful. Look at verse 8. The days are coming when I'll make a new covenant. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. They turned away as easy as I made it for them. They turned away, they turned away. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that to come. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. I'll go right into the insides of who they are and transform them. No longer will they teach their neighbour, know the Lord, because they'll all know me, 
from the greatest to the least. I'm going to do such a work that every single humble person will know me. And verse 12, look at the very first word of verse 12. That's a key word. See verse 12? Make sure you look at your Bibles. What's the first word of verse 12 say? For. All of this inner work of God is based on, grounded in, the fact that he will forgive us. The new covenant is grounded in forgiveness. Not merit. Not performance. But forgiveness. Do you see the fundamental shape of the Bible again? Old covenant. It's all about do, do, perform, merit. Fail, fail, fail. Why did God do that? Because the problem for the human heart is that it's very hard for us to learn the lesson that we can't do enough. So God gave the whole history of Israel to teach that lesson, that humans can't get to him by performance. The whole history of Israel was to teach us, 1 Corinthians 10, was a type to teach us of these truths to drive us to see we need a new covenant, the New Testament. Do you remember Jesus on the last night before he's crucified? He says, um, take and eat this, take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant. Because he knew that the next day what he was going to do when he dies and his blood is shed, he's going to establish a new covenant of forgiveness. More next week. Because he operates as the great high priest. The eternal high priest, the one without his own sins to pay for, so that when he dies on a cross, it's paying for our sins, not his sins. He's the only high priest who can actually make it possible for us to be forgiven. And he comes into the world as God amongst us to do exactly that, to make it possible so that you can experience this new covenant, this new arrangement, which won't be doing us doing, it'll be him giving or him having done. This doesn't mean he just sweeps sin under the carpet. No, no, no. That's why the priest and temple language mattered so much. The true priest who goes into the true temple achieves the true reconciliation which no other religious figure could achieve. Brothers and sisters, you might be tempted to drift. It won't be most likely a drift out of Christianity into Judaism. That's not our issue. And it most likely won't be a drift out of Christianity into another religion. Our challenge in drifting, we're probably more tempted to drift into a broader belief that, you know what, I think everyone's going to be okay, whatever religion. So I'm going to keep my faith in God and my admiration for Jesus, but I'm just not going to get narrowed on Jesus as the only way because there's lots of different ways it just feels more generous to think like that less self-righteous but, but, but please hear this this morning Christianity is not saying it's only those who keep the Christian rules who'll be saved it's not saying that it's rather saying there's only one way to God for sinners and that's by Forgiveness. God giving us the gift we don't deserve. There's only one way, a new covenant way, which is not found in any other religion. It's only found in Jesus. Jesus, the sinless, eternal one. The need for this forgiveness 
is necessary because we cannot keep any other covenant. And so if you drift from trusting Jesus and his gift covenant, your only other option is a do covenant. And it will kill you. It will not work. You see why it matters not to drift. We're not just talking about drifting from the institution of Christianity. We're talking about drifting from your, your trust in the gracious work of a high priestly saviour, Jesus. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about drifting from him who died for you to give you a gift that you could not find anywhere else. But let me just say, this gift is not given without any qualifications. It doesn't just get applied to everybody. It's only applied and it only works for those that see their need of a gift covenant, not a do covenant. But whoever you are, if you come looking for a gift from the gracious God in Jesus, you'll find it. Whoever looks to the Son will be saved. Whoever believes in him will be forgiven. But outside of him, there's no hope. Persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us continue to put our confidence in the gift of Jesus that we might see why it matters so much to continue to trust him. That it's not about rule keeping, it's about relationship with Jesus, the high priest who has paid a sacrifice in the eternal temple to make it so that we sinners can be forgiven. Please help us get clarity on these things. Help us get sharp on this, that we might be able to weather the storms of temptations to drift. And we thank you for the grace and mercy we find. What a wonderful, wonderful gift. Amen.